I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, we go to Alaska to decipher a crime case above the Arctic Circle in Midnight Sun. Plus, what happens when you leave the decision to press charges and rape cases to prosecutors and not cops? We'll discuss the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting's newest podcast, Dig. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Namaste, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady and cabless plow driver, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, that's me. And uh, there was a great plow picture of me on our Twitter feed and our Instagram this week. (laughs) There is. It's very New Hampshire. We just lost all of New York. It's New Hampshire AF. (laughs) Finally, our captain of woke cynicism and the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and the host of our spectacular Patreon book club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hi, Rebecca. Well, right now, listeners, on our Patreon, you can get the latest episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast about the book Helter Skelter. You can also get tonight's CWO After Show, which we are going to be posting. And in it, we're going to be talking a little bit more about In the Dark and the new episode about Doug Evans' recusal from the case. And also on this week's Patreon exclusive Crime Writers on After Show is, drumroll please, Kevin, an exclusive, long form, in depth interview with. Our very handsome line producer, Henry Lavoy. Yay! Uh, Henry will give his take on what it's like working on the show, what he thinks of the four of us, and he also weighs in on some of the content we have reviewed on this very podcast. Let's listen to a short clip of that right now. What was the uh, crazy one with two brothers? 
Um, oh, tell me who I am. Tell me who I am. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty fucked up. I yeah, gotta, yeah, that was pretty wild. What was fucked up about it? Just everything. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, there wasn't a single thing about that documentary that wasn't just absolutely wild. Yeah. Does it uh, help or hurt that you also have a brother? I mean, can you sort of imagine being in that situation at all? No. <laughs> no, definitely not. If you want to hear more from our very handsome line producer, Henry Lavoie, and a little bit more about how we feel about Doug Evans' recusal and the In the Dark episode about it, check out our Patreon-exclusive Crime Writers on After show right now at patreon.com slash crime no partners in crime partners in crime media <laughs> shit you know I do feel like we set up our Patreon like way before we knew what we were going to be doing we should have just been like patreon.com slash crime but we didn't it's patreon.com slash partners in crime media I'm going to look at that I wonder who has that <laughs> I mean good might be like crime and sports one of our friends over there and uh, Toby you are recording another book club next week what is the next book up after this Helter Skelter episode of the deep dive uh, it's called Savage Appetites Ooh, and it's uh, four sort of essays about uh, by this one author whose name I'm spacing about women who became obsessively involved in crimes that they actually didn't have much to do with. Like, it wasn't involving people they knew or whatever. So there's, you know, one's about um, a woman, people may have heard of her, but she created these like super intricate uh, little models of yes. women. Yes, she's from yeah. New Hampshire. Yeah. So there's one about her. There's one about uh, a person who uh, was involved with the uh, Tate family after the Manson murders. There's one about Damien Eccles' wife. Mm. Um, and then there's another one I'm reading right now, so I'm not quite on top of it. Uh, we've got the usual star-studded group of guests. Who are the guests? So it's uh, Amy Schlossberg, who does uh, Women in Crime and used to do Direct Appeal. Uh, Rebecca Sebastian from Dialogue and uh, Yellow Tape uh, True Crime Trivia. Mm -hmm. I believe those two guests were on another version of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Together, right? Yes, it is just a coincidence they're on again together mm. now. And then from Australia, I mean, hopefully, is Elise McGovern, um, who's also been on before. And, you know, hopefully she's not affected by, you know, the out-of-control fires in Australia. Oh jeez, yeah. yeah. Mm. So anyway, I think it'll be a, be a really good discussion. Uh, the books the books interesting. God only knows when it's going to drop, but we're recording on Monday, otherwise known as today. Okay, <laughs> when it drops, is uh, really all comes down to our handsome line producer Henry Lavoie, and as we know, he can be mercurial about his production. Henry Lavoie. He's also got college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say, Mom, I just want to join a frat. But this week, you Why know, I, I kept asking him, like, you got to get that deep dive up. We got to get that deep. He was also doing Crime Rangers on. He also, like, had time to go skiing. Oh, that's bullshit. He had time to make dumplings from scratch with his beautiful girlfriend. <laughs> of course, we ate those dumplings, so we can't really complain. Right. He made Amber and Amber Hunt and Alex Segura wait. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, he went skiing with his friends during his oh break from college. Right. Imagine people. that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right. Well, check out our Patreon if you want to get all that stuff. Plus, you get married with podcast, Laura's awesome podcast, leave it to Bricker, etc. All right, are you guys ready to start the show right now? Sure. I'm ready. 
My new pack name is Millicrook. My English name is James Domic Jr. This is Midnight Sun. In the Alaskan Arctic, villagers responded to the mysterious death of an elderly woman in 2012. They're met by her son, a native-turned-fledgling actor named Teddy Kyle Smith. First responders and villagers run to Dolly's house to find Teddy sitting on the couch and Dolly's dead body in the bedroom. They try CPR, but it's too late. By the time they declare her dead and leave the bedroom, Teddy's left the house. In Midnight Sun from Audible Originals, narrator James Domic Jr. is the great-grandson of an indigenous storyteller. He brings the listener to the remote lands of rural Alaska to explore Smith's case and to investigate one of his claims that while as a fugitive in the wilderness, he was visited by a mythic tribe thought only to exist in legend. From a distance I saw in the daylight, they were all dark. They were hairy. Their faces were leathery. As we were growing up, we, we always heard and told stories of them, but the true meanings were never, never understood. It was just always understood that they were there. A blend of true crime and lore, Midnight Sun explores more than a violent crime in an isolated world. It looks at indigenous culture, its challenges in the modern world, and what happens when it collides with the U.S. justice system. Audible Originals is sold as an audiobook of sorts, but its format is classic podcast, complete with recorded interviews, archival audio, and tape of the narrator's experience. It's available for sale, or for Audible members, it can be purchased for free with your monthly Audible Originals credits. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about extensive plot points for Midnight Sun, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin, this is the first time we've ever done an Audible original uh, in in this show. We did West Cork, yeah, but that was also released on podcast apps as a podcast. It was, I mean, remember, it was originally only available on Audible, correct? Behind the firewall, correct? And then the and then they made it available. But the Audible originals strategy, I happen to have a little bit of inside baseball knowledge on this. So I'm going to share it with you. They are trying to create content that is shorter than an audiobook. More of like a bingeable experience that will um, be separate from their book, you know, content, other authors, other publishers to create stories that people can, you know, consume, can binge like podcasts on the platform. And they do it instead as chapters. So instead of like episode one, episode two, episode three, it was chapter one. What did you think of this format? It's a podcast in everything but name only. Yeah. Including the way it's produced, which is a lot of extemporaneous tape. It's in live interviews. It's tape from the scene of uh, police incidents and courts. And so it's not, it's really not an audiobook in any shape or form. Yeah. Other than you can buy it at audible.com. Now, Toby, you sent me a note that was one of the, like, the, my sort of biggest thoughts that I've been grappling with around this podcast. I'm just going to call it a podcast because that's what it is. It's an Audible original, but it's a podcast. They make a decision at the beginning to basically spoil the ending. And they have this very strong opening. What do you think of that decision? And when you were listening to the podcast, how did you feel about it kind of as you went along? Do you want to just explain what happens and then just tell me what you think about that? Sure. Um, so at the beginning, 
And Jason Moon actually on Twitter said that he thought that was the best beginning he'd heard, I think. So that's high praise from high sources. <laughs> All right. So it starts off where uh, this guy, James Domic tells this legend about his tribe, which is the uh, Inupuks, and uh, this other tribe. And this is a long time ago, the, the Inukins. And they apparently live side by side and in peace. And uh, But there's this incident that happens where a loose sled dog eats an Inukin kid. And it causes this rift. And the Inukins decide they're going to sort of retreat into the wilderness. So he tells a story. And then he says, and that was basically the last anybody really knew of the Indians until Teddy Kyle Smith saw them while, you know, I, I can't remember exactly whether he said while he was on the run or before he was captured or whatever. So the setup is, is that this guy has actually seen these sort of mythical little people, these little hairy, but very strong Indians. I mean, it's a big setup. It's a great start. It's a big setup. You're like, in my mind, I was like, how how the hell is he going to get any satisfaction out of this? Like, it seems like kind of a no-win prospect that you're talking about this guy who saw little legendary creatures. But to his credit, I think he he, he pulls it off uh, and, and asks some super interesting questions in doing it. But the, the I guess the decision that's made is, you know, he can start it in this very interesting way, but he's giving away the end of the sort of main story, which is Teddy Kyle Smith's shooting at uh, village people who come to help his mother, his dead mother, and then fleeing into the wilderness. And then what happens to him? Like you find out within the first like four or five minutes. Yeah. So I guess the question is, is it worth it to have this like great opening, but take away some of the suspense? Yeah. And, you know, I don't think there's a definite answer. Uh, you know, it's a trade-off. Uh, for me, I thought it it worked. I thought the end, the beginning was very intriguing. It's parts of the story are so harrowing that you know the fact that he have, ends up being caught is not really a giveaway to the end of certain things that happen along the way mm. that are very tense. Um, so I, I I think it was a good choice, but you know, it, it's not it's not a slam dunk. I'm, I'm sure there are people who feel otherwise. See, I I somewhat disagree about. The suspense, because I think the way they do set it up is, yes, you know that Teddy is in jail, but you actually don't know for what. Hmm. And when we find out, and I, I mean, I, I know we're in the spoiler free and I just, I hate talking we're about it. We're not in the spoiler anyway. free. We're in the spoiler zone. Oh, you're right. Sorry. So, okay. Spoiler uh, zone. Spoil um, it, Kevin. When you find out that he did, his mother wasn't murdered, well, or we, we don't, don't, we don't know. know. We don't know, yeah. It's certainly, you find him with a gun, but she wasn't shot or... You find out, well, then what did he go to jail for? And what was all this other stuff? And so I think that I thought that that built suspense. And certainly, I'm still waiting for until we get to the buckles. Mm. Well, we'll talk about the buckles. The, but, uh, for me, I thought it was still, I was still like, The oh. buckle story is incredible, and that yeah. is the height of suspense for me. I actually, if I'm going to ding this podcast for a couple things, I will ding it for occasionally sloppy asides and writing. James is an interesting guy. And I think that he leans into his, quote, interestingness a little bit yeah. too often and too many times. Too many fucks. I was in a band. I was an actor. Yeah. he. The asides are unnatural sometimes. People tend to misspell my English name, but they 100% of the time misspell my Inupak name, Milukruk. It means 
Warrior who pulls arrows out of own body and fires back at enemy. I'm messing with you. It means breastfeeding mama's boy. I also go by Junior or Domic or James Chronic Jr. If you're not into that whole brevity thing. What was I talking about? But the part where he's just writing narrative is so good and so strong and hearing him in the field is so good and so strong that I feel like those asides are dopey. My other issue with the setup to this podcast is he says over and over and over again, I thought this was one thing and then it turned into so many other things. The story started simple, but then many people got hurt and many people like we know, like we get it. He sets it up that way at the beginning, but then he goes kind of that there over and over and over again. So, but I I will say, like, those are quibbles because there's so much about this to like. And I just wanted to sort of get that out there because I feel like I think that James may have had the expectation that people would maybe just Google the case at the beginning or knew more about the case than we did. I didn't. And I found myself wishing I hadn't been tipped off a little bit at the uh, at the beginning. But that is a quibble. And I think it's a, a debate in the editor's room that could have gone either way. Laura, I want to ask you another question about this podcast that I know that I completely entranced and pulled me in was the setting. This extreme yes. northern setting, like deep in the Alaskan forest, these tiny villages. Wilderness. Kotz is one of Alaska's hub towns. It has a jet runway, but just like Kayana, there's no roads in or out. It's just above the Arctic Circle on the northwest coast. Kotz is where everyone from the surrounding villages come for basketball tournaments and groceries and to go to the hospital and also the best Chinese food in the state. Yeah, I, I think that for me was what was so compelling as I started to listen to this. And you're, as you were talking about, you know, the way the story opened, we know sort of the way it ends. But I think because of the setting and because of this really unique area that they're describing and also this culture that we're being taken inside and really learning about the village and, uh, you know, where James is from and Teddy's from and just listening to this description of like going in on like, what was it, like a six seat bush plane to get yes. in ah. and then and you have to wear your parka and boots onto any plane up there because it could go down yeah and and if you're there you imagine yeah and the weather's coming they're like better get out now because you won't <laughs> be getting out for like five years if you don't go now <laughs> um so it was you know i just think that was so you know so the setting but then also the setting within the village was really intriguing to me because i think that you know nobody but james I mean, I won't say nobody, but he was the person to tell this story because he didn't have, I mean, nobody else was going to know who to talk to and actually have people willing to speak to him because there's that trust factor like, oh, he's, oh, I grew up with him or, oh, I used to do this with this person or that. And, you know, I think, I don't know about you guys, but I just loved Big Bob. My name is Robert Jason Sampson. Bob's lived in Kiana for over a decade, but we know each other from before. Growing up together in Kotzebue, we used to box in the seventh grade. You knocked me out before <laughs> when we were boxing at Marley's. Boxing gloves? 
I used to knock out a lot of people growing up. Because it's just like James is kind of flip in a way as he's just he's like Big Bob. He likes to party and he likes to talk, but he knows everybody. And so then I loved listening to like the kind of like how the sausage is made in terms of how they were getting people to come and speak with James. And, you know, Big Bob is calling them up and you're hearing these phone calls and he's like, yeah, hey, you know. And then at one point, you know, there's that scene where he like finds Big Bob who's got like his like it's like what 11 and he's already got his fifth of whiskey out or something um to kind of get the interview going but i just thought it was really interesting listening to james sort of reconnecting with the people in that village and just you realized what a close-knit community he was going into because if you didn't know the person directly you knew their relative you know they all knew each other right um and it was that was really fascinating to listen to and bob's got that uh sweet hat that he made out of the uh, Crown Royal bag. That's right. <laughs> that thing was awesome. So it's two-fifths of Crown Royal bag. I think it's four. Four of them. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. I see front and back. That hat, it takes more than a few bottles to make. One, two. It's enough three, to make my liver shake just looking at that damn hat. Five, six. Look, there's a pocket right here. No, it was really good. Flat Toby. One of the things, Toby, that I I love the sort of inside look into, because this is something that I don't think we would ever think about. And this is where James, I mean, I know I criticized his like dopey asides earlier, where I really give him as a storyteller a lot of credit is for A, being the right person to tell the story because he's from there, but also because he has this understanding of how Hollywood and casting agencies, you know, work with and arguably kind of exploit the people where he's from to kind of populate the films that they want to make about their region. Toby, what did you think about this sort of inside look at like this Hollywood casting agent culture in Alaska with these indigenous people who live super far north and suddenly find themselves with these opportunities to be like extras in a Drew Barrymore movie or whatever. Well, it's, I was talking, I can't remember who I was talking to. It might actually be my mom about that part of it. You know, I think as, as a, a Native American, like you're so used to seeing non-Natives play Native Americans. And I think it was Dances with Wolves. It seemed really revolutionary at the time because it's like, wow, you know, real Native Americans playing Native Americans. And so, but the white man coming in and saving them because that is the way that films are. (laughs) It's Avatar with wolves. We're we're disgusting casting. Casting is the point, (laughs) right? I mean, it's not not like Dancing with Wolves is like a a great masterpiece of uh, cultural understanding. It was interesting because I think there's there's a few things going on. There's one there are like Teddy Kyle Smith and to a certain extent James Dominic Jr who, you know, want to be in films, you know, it's not just like a matter of like a sudden opportunity and it'll be kind of a lark. It's, you know, we want to be either in films or be part of this, you know, of the artistic, you know, make an artistic life in America. And then there's the other thing, which is, oh, they're going to make a movie about, you know, our area and to make it seem authentic, they've got to grab a certain number of people who are authentic to sort of, you know, be the background scenery. And then he has a, I guess, kind of funny little thing with one of his buddies who's like, they asked me, you know, can you like operate a dog sled? And I was like, uh, sure. So, you know, you said that it was annoying that he was saying at the beginning, I thought it was this, it turned out to be all these other things or whatever. 
I feel like he just gets into so many things. Yeah. In like five hours. A lot happens in this podcast. It's not even, it's like three and a half hours. So many things happen. It really is incredible. And he gets to so many like kind of cool issues and and talks to people who I think, you know, either have interesting insights into them or illustrate those things in interesting ways. So, you know, as you can probably tell, I really liked it. And that that was like a lot of the reason. Well, I will say that uh, Teddy Kyle Smith is... He's a much more complicated character than I expect him to be when we start the podcast. I mean, he's almost like a Hollywood character like that would be in fiction. He is, you know, local boy from this very faraway place. He becomes a Marine uh, and serves in the military. Then he becomes this like handsome actor who gets cast in these high profile films. He goes to Sundance Film Festival. And then he has this breakdown, you know, and these addiction issues and kind of breaks bad, goes on the run like his story feels very cinematic and Hollywood and it would have been very easy to tell the story in a linear kind of lazy way where it's just about that. Like this, honestly, it could have been a solid, good podcast just about the Teddy Kyle Smith crime and like what happened and the mystery around it. Bring in all the other things was efficient and was good and gave it so much more scope. Can we talk about the crime? We will talk about the crime, but I want to ask you a question about yeah, that, Kevin, right. first. Because one of the most interesting aspects of this audio project to me is how much audio there is from the cops and the recorder the cop carried. All he has is an audio recorder. Right. Okay. Hey, Teddy. He shouts down to Teddy. Can I come talk to you? Teddy calls out for Lorena. He says, let me talk to my fucking sister. Let me talk to my fucking sister. We'll talk to your sister? Okay. Annie Reed, another villager at the scene, calls out. Teddy? Can we talk? It's me, Annie. But Teddy doesn't say anything. He raises his gun and shoots. I have to wonder if that was the foundation of why this whole thing happened, because we have so much information about the crime because we get to be audio witnesses to the beginning of the crime spree because of this cop recording. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's it's great that um, certainly I'm going to guess that in Alaska, their uh, public information and freedom of information laws are much more liberal than in other states because this journalist was able to get all sorts of recordings, the arrest, the incident, his discussion with investigators. I mean, all that was made available. And it really brings alive this story, which, you know, without it, I think you've got an audio book. Yeah. But this is a podcast. Yeah. They made a good podcast. So the crime is him, you know, his mother is discovered dead. It's still kind of a mystery sort of surrounding her death. Yeah. But then he shoots at the people who come to help. But then there is this incredible chapter about these brothers, the Buckle brothers, who go north on this bear hunting trip because one of them draws a tag for bear hunting. By the way, like I am not a hunter and like hunting is difficult for me to like think about, but like I also understand. It's so it's so great about one of the things about this story that's so great is that they really ground you in the place so much that you understand that without going and killing animals, like, you would starve to death. Like, they make that incredibly clear. And so, you know, even when you have this sort of, like, recreational hunting trip with these brothers, you're in a place where you're sort of like, yeah, 
that sounds cool. Like a fun thing to do in a lab. I don't know. Anyway, so they go on this trip. They are flown way up north with all of their stuff. And uh, James does an incredible job just explaining kind of like what you have to bring to go on a trip like this. So the Buckle brothers bring a satellite phone plus two portable VHF radios as a backup in case they need a call for help. They bring everything they need to survive. Guns, food, warm clothes, a tent. No room to fuck up out there. We mounted up a raft and the rest of the stuff, they dropped us on up the Squirrel River. They go up there. They're floating on a river going down south. They are freezing. They stop in a cabin and they have this basically 24 hours of hell that sounds like an SVU episode. Teddy shouts, you guys need to get the fuck out of here. He was screaming and hollering and he just seemed like somebody that all of a sudden was really angry. Paul calls down to Teddy. I don't know what we just did wrong, sir, but we will leave. Chuck says, just relax, we'll leave, no problem. But Teddy keeps his hand on the gun. Teddy pulls the fucking trigger and shoots Chuck right through the chest. It was fucking crazy. Um, I was just like listening to this and it was like something like when you heard it, it didn't even sound like a true story. It sounded like something you would watch in a movie like Misery where the guy, you know, he's like trapped in the cabin with the lady out in the middle of nowhere. But just listening to, you know, these brothers and they're like, oh, it's like the handyman or the electrician or whatever. And like, you know, because Teddy is playing this role uh, that he's supposed to be there, even though he's not. And then when, you know, the one guy gets shot, you know, it was just so dramatic, but it continued to get dramatic. I mean, it was like it was like listening to a movie when you have like, you know, the they get on the radio and they manage to like, you know, get in touch with this lady and it did the rescue. I mean, it was just um, that was probably the most compelling part of this whole podcast for me. I mean, I was I was very interested in the little mysterious mythical people, but this whole section was just riveting right down to you know when they landed and had to come across the you know cold river to get these guys i I don't know about others but i was just i was just mesmerized by this whole scene toby what did you think because i thought this this buckle brothers saga again could have been a whole podcast in and of itself and the storytelling makes this a chapter that I thought was also kind of incredible. What did you think about it, Toby? Yeah, I was trying to think of if there was another sort of podcast or audio thing that was as sort of intense and harrowing and suspenseful as this is, you know, without a, a lot of success. I, I thought it was I thought it was unbelievable. I mean, I was driving along and it was just completely immersive. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a scene from a movie or a very scary book or something like that. But there's something very primal about, you know, coming across a stranger in the middle of the wilderness and people have guns and it's inhospitable. And I thought it was an incredible chapter. So what do we all think of Teddy's assertion that he had a vision of these lost people in the woods? The Inyakins. It makes the story turn in a big way. He ends up, you know, kind of coming home, getting arrested. One of the things that's really interesting to me is the fact that most people in his own community, including our narrator, James, to some extent, acknowledge that they believe in the Inyakins' existence. And there is this thread of like, this could be true. Kevin, what do you think about that? 
I'm not buying it. You're um, not. I mean, with all due respect to people's culture, I don't believe in leprechauns or Bigfoot or El Chupacabra. A lot of cultures have their myths. But to say that there is an entire tribe who are living above the Arctic Circle, completely cut off from civilization, and will just appear while you are running from the law in the great frozen tundra, I'm not buying it. Mm. But, okay, but what does that mean? I mean? You know, there's some talk about, like, was this a religious experience? And maybe, but I think it brings up the topic about whether or not he's nuts, right? And that's an indelicate way of saying it, but is he just bullshitting investigators when he says he saw this? Or, you know, is it indicative of some other psychological issue? Because, you know, I started thinking, look, if he has, we'll just say something, right? If there's something... A personality um, disorder, personality disorder, an addiction insane. disorder, yeah, a, a, me- a severe mental illness. We'll just say a problem, right? Just because it could PTSD. Of, if he has a problem, where later he's saying he sees these people. Look, he goes in and find and says to everybody, "My mother's dead," and that I killed her. Or did he even say that? No. He may have thought that he killed. She may have died natural causes, and he thinks something karmic has happened, that he is responsible, not by his own hand, but because he has been bad or whatever. And that's part of why he kind of loses it. Hmm. He also could have done something violent, although there seems to be little evidence of that. But There's just... little evidence of that. He then later like shot a person. No, to his mother. There's no, no there's very little evidence that he did something. But there is to his evidence that he's capable of violence. When you hear him later and he goes and visits his friend on Long Island and he threatens that guy's yeah. family, like he has a th- threatened his son the issues. same day. Yeah. He has issues. He has issues. Right. Right. So the question becomes it's either one of three things. Either A, he's full of shit when he talks about the Inikins. B, he thinks he sees them, but it's because he's having some kind of psychotic incident. Or three. He really saw him. He really saw him. I'm just saying. He, he well, people seem to think. What do you think, Laura? Well, I was going to say, I mean, when you're talking about having some sort of hallucinogenic incident, he was eating only berries and water. He could have perhaps been eating some berries that were like psychedelic. You never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never just know. saying. Just throwing it out there. But Toby, this, this does bring up the sort of the larger issue that comes in the final chapter of the podcast about sort of the jury of the peers. This argument that... You know, anybody who isn't part of this community can't really understand the experience of somebody who is part of the community. What did you think of the sort of criminal justice leg uh, of the podcast sort of as it's coming to its conclusion about Teddy's trial and whether or not he was treated fairly when he is making all these assertions about having had this somewhat mystical encounter while he was on the run? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I, I think it's a couple different things. And one of them is. How seriously do you take that encounter? You know, and I'm with I'm with Kevin too. I just sort of on the face of it, don't think there's a tribe of hairy little guys running around the Alaska wilderness. But that being said, uh, when that part came, you tweeted out this week or last week, uh, Rebecca, that New Yorker story about the earthquake. Yes, uh, potential earthquake around Seattle. Yes, and there's a part in there where they talk about how there was a tribe in Puget Sound or a couple of tribes or whatever who had these legends about another tribe that just disappeared. Yes. 
And they'd always thought that that was, you know, that was just some kind of myth- mythological thing. And then they come to find out that almost definitely they were wiped out by a tsunami. Yes. Um, and she makes a comment about how easy it is for white culture or whatever to sort of, you dismiss. know, poo-poo, yes. yeah, dismiss these legends as being just mythological and not based on actual historical facts. So, you know, kind of keep that in mind and, and, and who knows what that means in this particular case. The second part of it is how do you get a jury of your peers which I think is sort of more of a pressing issue just because the way of life in that town is so extreme mm. that I, I do think, you know, you can make a strong case that unless people are not just sort of book familiar, but like a- actually familiar with what that situation is like, it's probably hard to be able to put yourself in sort of the community value mode of that place. Yeah to make those kinds of decisions. The other side of the coin is, you know, how do you get a jury? How do you get 12 people who've had that kind of experience who don't know this guy, you know, and get them into one place yeah. for a long period when, of time? When James can't even walk into any situation and not know everybody, right? Like that's, yeah. it's demonstrated for us. That's what's so brilliant about the podcast is it's demonstrated for us. But I, and I think what he does say, and I, and I think it's a valid point and, I, and maybe it's more about prisons, but like, this is what it's like to be colonized, yeah. right? Is that you have these systems imposed on you that aren't respectful of your culture. Right. And that's kind of the situation that he's in. Listen, I'm just going to go on the record and saying that I think there's an excellent chance that uh, Teddy could have seen the Inukins in the mm. forest. I do. Ah. You know why? Why? Because <laughs> we don't know. Like oh, we, come on. This is like, no, I mean- Come on. I think it's we don't interesting. Know. I'm I'm with Rebecca. I I kind of hope he did. I'm not, and I'm not being. And I'm oh, not come being on. like. I'm not being oh, like Kevin. like Bigfoot about it. I'm not. You're not. I'm saying, Kevin. There are people. The the way that this place is described, it would not be hard to live completely off the grid. And away from everybody. Yeah, for 48 hours and then everybody's dead. I'm just saying. I, but I, I don't think they're small and hairy. I, I think that that yeah. part was weird. It sounded like a baby bear to me. All right, baby Yoda. Okay, we have, have satellites. <laughs> we would see them. I have a final thing I just want to bring up because right. it's important. We've reviewed a lot of podcasts and true crime podcasts in particular where our hosts have tried to recreate some experience. Yes. Or done a, like a road test. You know, like when Sarah and Dana yes. did the first, we, call, and we, we, we coined this phrase, root talk. Actually, uh, Sarah Kane had coined that phrase in an earlier episode okay, yeah, of yeah. American Life and then got brought That's back. That's what I meant. It was- Yes, root talk. And then Amber hunted it in the podcast review last week where they rebuilt the salt vat. So James says he, quote, has to go into the wilderness and that everyone around him is like, Why? I had the same question. Kevin, what did you think? Worst root talk ever. <laughs> you decide you're going to train for six months to hike into the wilderness above the Arctic Circle. Where you could die. Where you could die, where you need a special guide so that you could hunt a mythical <laughs> tribe of indigenous people that no one has seen for hundreds of years, except for the one guy who says that he saw them while he was on the, on the lamb. Run, yes. So, and I think actually about halfway through, James kind of comes to the conclusion like, 
what the fuck am I doing? It was like man versus wild. It was just like naked and afraid. It's like, (laughs) I I appreciate your dedication to get a really great piece of tape, but come on, man. Yeah. Laura, what'd you think? Bacon and butter, man. I mean, (laughs) bacon and butter and oatmeal. It sounds like it was quite an adventure, you know? And then we had a little bit of the, you know, he might've heard something. They might have yeah. been outside his tent. There were some sounds. Yeah. Um, it was a little know. bit ghost adventures for me. A little yeah. bit ghost adventures. Sort of going along yeah. with what I said earlier about James's sort of off the cuff sides where he's like a little bit broish. This part of the podcast was a little bit broish. Toby, what were you going to say? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it, it certainly wasn't the best part of the podcast. I do think what it, it did demonstrate, though, was how freaking insanely difficult it must have been for Teddy Kyle Smith to do all this like solo having just walked out of his house. Yeah. Like not trained, not gotten all this shit together or whatever, but just walked out of his house. Some people showed up, he shouted at them and then he just went. Yeah. Like how he managed to survive is a incredible. I don't know if he's trying to make a point that like maybe he had to have had some help to survive. I don't know. He went to that cabin and waited for somebody to bring him food. And a raft. Yeah, a raft. Stole their guns. guns. <laughs> Let's do what we do. Let's tell our listeners, because I, I suspect many of our listeners have not heard of this project. I heard about it like from some public radio people and from Toby. Midnight's on on Audible. So the way you listen to it is you either use your Audible account, go to the Audible original section, or just search for Midnight Sun and you can get it there. Or you can buy it for and a couple of bucks. And that's Sun with an O. Yes, yeah, Sun with an O, Midnight yeah. Sun, S-O-N. Or you can buy it for a couple of bucks, or you know, you can just, I don't know if they're going to put it out as a podcast ever, but I, I did think it was important enough and interesting enough to review, so I'd encourage you, uh, if you like our reviews, to perhaps check it out. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Midnight Sun on Audible? Thumbs up. It was really interesting. I listened to it, you know, I think over the course of like maybe two days because it was just something that was easy to binge and listen to. Really interesting scene setting. Um, learned a lot about the culture. And I am going to go out on a limb uh, and say I am just fascinated by the mythical creatures that may or may not exist that were talked about in the podcast. So uh, listen in. Toby Ball, what about you? What's your review for Midnight Sun? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, I give it a big thumbs up. I really loved it for all the you know, reasons I've said before, you know, I think it peters out a little bit at the end, but for all the rest of it, I just thought it was super interesting. The mix of intense storytelling and suspense mixed with really interesting looks at the lives of people and other sort of issues related to Native Americans and like rural Alaskans. It's just, a, I thought, a really potent mix. Big thumbs up. What do you think, Kevin? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Midnight Sun on Audible? Uh, I'm a thumbs up. I like James' voice. It's a little dude-ish and perhaps forced at sometimes, but I kind of like it. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, I.O. Till It Right from Ballad of Billy Ball. Some, somebody else I can't quite put my finger on, but... It was uh, it was interesting, but we need indigenous voices uh, by nature of their lifestyle and their location. Their stories are really fascinating. And could this have been told like on a Cherokee reservation in the lower 48? Yeah, but it would be a completely different kind of story. And I think by nature of the fact that it happened in the Alaskan Arctic and just sort of all of that, that kind of conjures up, it makes it for a really rich tale. And so, again, for me, thumbs up. 
I'm going to give it a thumbs up too. I really, really liked Midnight Sun. There are things that would have made it a resplendent thumbs up for me. I would have liked it more if I didn't know the end at the beginning. I would have liked it more if we perhaps had an editor who helped James shape his asides in a way that they added to and didn't take from the narrative because he is an excellent storyteller, a great narrator. And I think perhaps in the storytelling, a producer somewhere perhaps encouraged him to lean into those asides. I would have made the other choice and said, let's just hear you be who you are in the Nat tape that you collect when you talk to people. Because we got plenty of Nat him. tape, natural tape. Yeah, when he's talking to his friend Bob, when he's talking to people, we hear what he's like and we don't need to hear him tell us what he's like. So to me, that was my like kind of like main dig at the at the podcast. Plus, the end does peter out a little bit. That that chapter with the Buckle Brothers and the what the crime really was was so astonishing and so suspenseful. One of the most suspenseful pieces of audio I've heard in a long time. So for that and for the rest of it, and for the fact that it's a story unlike any I've heard before, thumbs up for me for Midnight Sun. Moving on. Nine one one. Where is your emergency? Little Marriott downtown. Tell me exactly what happened. I was just screaming at him, what happened, what happened, why is all this blood here? Always open the door, please. My heart felt like it was sitting outside of me. The producers of The Pope's Long Con return with a new podcast series. In season one of Dig from the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting and Louisville Public Media, host Eleanor Klippinoff examines the way rapes are prosecuted in Louisville. Over a three-year period, Louisville police cleared 2.5% of all cases because a prosecutor declined them. But they cleared 40% of all rape cases that way. And Louisville is doing this more frequently than other cities. In fact, among large police agencies, Louisville has the sixth highest rate of rape cases cleared without an arrest. By following the case of one rape victim, Dig digs up plenty of evidence of a legal process misused at the expense of victims and shines a light on a system motivated more by conviction rates and crime statistics than by prosecuting the offenders or advocating for victims. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Dig, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the time code listed in our show notes to hear our reviews. And a little bit of a trigger warning, we are going to be discussing a podcast that discusses sexual violence. Lara Bricker. I want to talk about episode one of this podcast because it focuses on the rape case of one woman, Jen, who we hear her story sort of as the thread that holds the podcast together in terms of the way that the policies in Louisville affect people. But we do hear some incredible tape of officers arriving at the scene when this victim describes... Uh her own attack as she's sort of coming out of it and how the officers react to that. I could not breathe. I could not talk. Like, I was on the verge of, like, a panic attack. I understand that you've been drinking tonight. Excuse me? Listen to me. I know I was drugged. I just felt like I was, like, trying to convince them or something. She's drunk, so we don't know how much we can believe that her. Laura, this is about as anti-Olivia Benson as it gets. What did you think when you were hearing this part of the podcast? 
I don't think I have been this angry listening to a podcast since I listened to Doug Evans. I was cleaning. I, I was like, I got my new AirPods for Christmas and I was like, I'll listen to this while I'm cleaning. And I was cleaning the bathroom and I just, I like lost my mind when I was listening to this. So the, the tape that we have is just, it's almost unbelievable when you hear these police officers like, well, she's had something to drink. You know, this happens all the time. They bring them back to their room and then they regret it. But then, that contrasted with her account of waking up in the bloody sheets with her insides hurting, like something has happened to her. And these images coming into her of like, you know, kind of how, you know, the evening played out, but then listening to them just freaking blow her off. But as I'm listening to that, I'm also like, what what the fuck is this? This is not how we interview rape victims. You do not do it in a hotel room when they are completely traumatized and just coming around. You know, I mean, it was just on so many levels so awful that I just I couldn't even I had to I had to take a little break between episodes, even though these episodes were short. They packed a lot of punch in a short time. And I was I was like screaming as I was walking around my house. So that's how I reacted. I, I will say the thing that really struck me as you guys know, uh, you and Toby, Kevin and I watch a lot of Law and Order and SVU. We watch a lot of SVU, A, because we make a podcast about it, but also because we've been watching it for 20 years and we're just like still watching it. Yeah. I do feel like, Kevin, um, you know, as cheesy and as awful and silly as SVU is, let's just be real, it is. It also has, and there's like a lot of data to actually show this is the case, it has done a tremendous job of educating people in this country, young people and you know, just people about consent, about what their experience with the police is supposed to be like when they report. There's data that shows that people are more likely to report if they like have been exposed to this kind of media, which sort of talks about the upsides of reporting, the upsides of testifying, etc. I felt like Jen our protagonist, for lack of a better word, in this story, knew that. Even when she was still feeling the effects of the drugs, even when she was still sort of coming out of a reverie, you hear her talking back to the police like, wait, what? What are you, are you what are you saying? Are you kidding? Yeah, I mean, when, it, when someone gets robbed, the police don't ask you to prove that there had been money in the drawer. Yeah. To begin with. They never, they it never is very unfortunate that the way actually punched you in the face. Yeah, it's very unfortunate in the way that, that sexual assault is often investigated. Are there times where there are events that are consensual? Yes, but that doesn't mean that you go in with that's the default. What does it cost you to be kind and to be, yes, I believe you, in the beginning, right? If it's the worst case thing and you find out later that, no, it's the whatever, she was... It was consensual it's and not. yada yada. And it, even if it's that, it doesn't cost you anything to be kind in the beginning, just in case she actually is a victim, because she probably is. Yeah. It was very disappointing. However, I will say the cops are not the problem in this case. Well, well they were, in, I mean, in this story. But they were, though, because they were the, they were the reason why she wasn't comfortable immediately moving and acting, right. but I would say, which is but why even there if was the, less but, evidence. But even these cops were more empathic. Mm. The problem is not at the scene, necessarily. It's farther down the line here when it gets to the district attorney's office. But she makes the point, I will actually argue with you for a little bit, Kevin, mm-hmm. because I do think that Eleanor, like with their reporting, makes the outstanding point 
a huge problem with rape cases versus other kinds of crimes. Like you said, when someone says they were robbed and there was money in the drawer and it's gone, or when someone says that they were punched in a bar, but maybe the bruise hasn't shown up yet, nobody questions whether or not there was an assault because why would someone say they were punched if they weren't punched, right? Agreed. But with rapes, from from the cops all the way to the prosecutors, they're thinking downstream. They're already thinking, what will a jury say? What will a jury think? And that shouldn't matter just because this is a different kind of crime. They don't look at any other crime that way. They had a case they talked about where a guy raped a woman at gunpoint. I mean, how much more violent can you get? I mean, what else says rape but that? What else says rape more than a woman saying she was raped? and, And then you go to court and he gets probation? Yeah. What chance does Jen have? Yeah. You know? facing that now toby there really are two related issues here the first is the way the louisville justice system's record on carrying rape reports to indictments or trial or conviction works and the second is the way they are kind of taking advantage of this process this uh you know way of closing cases i mean it's kind of two things going on at once and it's very isolated to this it seems to this one city in Kentucky, because as we hear in the podcast, they compare to other cities and this just isn't happening other places. Toby, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, it, clearly a culture has developed there. You know, you see some of it in those tapes where it's, it's sort of trickled down to the police. But I think largely it's in the prosecutor's office. And I, I mean, at some point there just must have been this and, and they talk a little bit about it that rape cases are, are, are tough because there a lot of times it's a he said, she said type of thing. And I, I found it difficult to envision, you know, what, what the thought process is, quite honestly. Why would you become a, a city attorney with the idea being, I'm going to kind of punt on as many rape cases as I can? I, I don't get the motivation. But yeah, I mean, they seem to they found this this thing, which is, uh, and I'm not going to get the terminology right at all, but it's essentially we feel like we have enough uh, evidence to convict them, but to ind- close by exception, close by exception, but we're not going to prosecute right. for some reason. And you know, the reason they they usually cite, I guess, other places is, you know, uh, the victim doesn't want to testify or doesn't want to push the the case forward, but instead. They seem to do it like all the time for reasons that have nothing to do with that. Prosecutor declined. Yeah, prosecutor declined. Now, Toby, one of the things that really struck me also was that how many people in the story that they were interviewing from the prosecutor's office and on the police side were saying to this reporter, Eleanor Klippinoff, that her reporting was the reason why people were not going to report rapes in the future. The issues that make it difficult are that police are pitted as people who don't care and portrayed as people who don't care. And I think that is a big part of it. That stories like this will make it more difficult for women to come forward because they won't trust police because cases like this are difficult to prosecute. I mean, do you think it's the story that's going to stop people? But I mean, Frank, I mean... I think that there is a very good chance that some woman somewhere listens to how you're trying to make us sound and chooses not to come forward because you're making it sound like we don't care or we would know who her rapist was and we wouldn't prosecute. It was this incredibly Orwellian 
thing saying like you're going to make us look like we know where rapists are and we're not doing it. You're going to make us look this way. You're going to make us sound this way. And as she says in episode four, this is what LNPD has been telling me since I first started looking into this a year ago, that I am making it seem like they would know the identity of a rapist, know where that person is, be able to go make an arrest, but choose not to arrest and prosecute that person. But it's their own stats that make it seem like that. In 2017, LMPD cleared nearly half of all rape cases on those exact terms, compared to 15 percent that were cleared by arrest. Nationally, about 25 percent of rape cases are cleared by arrest each year. Toby, what do you think about that? I thought that was awesome. No, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's the whole like it's not just that. They also talk about like having victim centered prosecution. And that's what they're describing these closures as because it's getting some resolution for the victims and like these ridiculous plea bargains they do. You know, it's not victim centered at all. It's like DA centered. Right. It's 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 putting their interests forward uh, rather than the victims. So they're trying to they're trying to manipulate the language. They're trying to manipulate the situation, like by exposing like how we're actually going to treat people. You're going to keep them from coming to us because they'll know that, that we're going to treat them that way. So that's going to discourage them from reporting rapes. It's mind boggling that that is their argument, and and they do it in this sort of the spokeswoman Ugh, who. I hate her. You know, she's got like a, like, I get it that it's like, it's tough, man. Like, it's, it's got to be tough to try and defend that stuff. But, you know, she's so combative. Ugh. I mean, she just, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's not a good luck you've at been, all. Yeah. What did she say? Something like, you've been here for like a year and you're just trying to make us look bad. And like, you know, that, like, this is your goal. Like, and I'm just like, Fuck off. Like, it's like there was no self-awareness, honestly, of how bad this looks and how bad this sounds. Like, it's the reporter's fault. No, it's your broken systems and policies that are not being followed's fault. And there was like this disconnect of the problem isn't that this is being reported on. The problem that this is actually happening to start with. You know what I mean? Like, and there, there wasn't that awareness there at all. You know, someone who works also on the other side of the microphone... I get what she's doing. It's part of the job. You know, if she goes back and see, you know, and she feels like all these detectives are going to come up and say, hey, you let them say we don't do our job. And yet, I mean, that's part of the party line. That's what that kind of job is. But to do the thing about more people are going to stop reporting rapes because they hear your report. I'm with Laura. Like, fuck off. Yeah. But guys, <laughs> let's not take our eye off the ball. They're in any city. There are patrolmen who are jerks and don't follow their training and that isn't the issue what makes them an outlier is that they let the prosecutors in only these crimes decide the charge and then for the most part they don't go ahead and charge and that's the kind of thing it's a a systemic problem there that could be addressed i have a question for you though and i kept thinking about this a lot when i was listening to this podcast because one of the things i love about reporting on crime in new hampshire Mm -hmm because all of our books have been written about New Hampshire murders specifically, is that the burden of prosecution for murder in New Hampshire is very, very high. We have interviewed, Administratively, yes. Yes, we have, we've interviewed the, because the New Hampshire Attorney General's office, in a similar scheme to what we have in Louisville, the New Hampshire Attorney General's office decides 
if when the arrest is made in a murder. I mean, that's the crime. Mm-hmm. That's the one crime in which they become involved immediately. Yeah. And they're the ones who make that call. And their call is very trial centric. It's very much like if we can't win and we don't have an overwhelming amount of evidence, we won't make an arrest, even if there's probable cause, even if there's whatever. They want to win. They want to get the right person. And as much as that helps us as like writers, because we're very confident, like in the prosecutions that we've written about, and we're not reporting on cases like the Adnan Syed case or cases where like like a million things got messed up along the way because we know the attorney general holds this high bar. I kept thinking about that and I kept thinking like, what if that was rape? What if it was rape that they chose to look at this way, where it was like they're has we're look, looking downstream, we're looking this, we're that, and I have to say, like all the good, like a lot of the good feelings I had about these murder cases in New Hampshire, like I don't want to say they were diminished, but they were diminished a little, because I imagine being the family member of a victim and having the cops maybe in the local municipality tell me like. Yeah, we think we know who did it, but the AG says we can't make an arrest because we don't have enough evidence. Like it and cl- is, and clears the case outright. It's a tough proposition, as opposed to leaving it open. But isn't there something about this being like the rape only like process? Like this is what they've chosen for rape that is a inherently fucking sexist and also gross because, like as we keep saying, these are assaults. Period. Right? Yeah. And if someone is punched in a face, they don't do this same thing. Okay, so they if they if they wanted to make the argument, we don't have a lot of resources, and so it's a strategic thing that throughout our office we're going to go for the most winnable cases because that's all we can afford. I don't know if I can agree with that, but they can make that argument. But the fact that they've got prosecutors in other jurisdictions saying they're doing it wrong and that... There are other people in the criminal justice system who say, just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. Right. And doesn't mean you don't make the the arrest. Yes. Because that's what it calls for. Right. That I'm like, oh, all right, well, sorry, Louisville, but I guess you're wrong on this. You know how you learn to win difficult rape cases? You try difficult rape. You prosecute difficult rape cases. Laura, um, episode four of the podcast is a real stunner. Mm -hmm. Uh, We hear Eleanor talk to the police about this clearance process, this FBI Mm -hmm. term, by the way, which was made up by the FBI that they have manipulated. And basically the things are, you know, in order to clear a case by this, in this, this exceptional clearance, you have to have probable cause to have made an arrest. You have to have a suspect, all the things. And then the woman just admits that they don't actually have all those things. Then it happened anyway. And she just keeps pressing, and the answer remains the same. What did you think of that just journalistically and how that played out in the podcast? Well, it was interesting because we don't actually hear a lot of the two-way interview process throughout this podcast as much. Like we would hear like we'd hear somebody talking and then we'd hear the reporter sort of summarize what was going on. But in this one, we had this sort of back and forth, but it was just maddening to listen to because it was like clear. And she kept asking the question like, so X, Y, and Z happened here. That means you should have, you you know who it was. You should have proceeded. Why is it being cleared like this? Because it's being cleared. Ask the question again, because it's being cleared. And I'm like, bah! like, what is going on here? I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. 
you know, and oh, the thing we didn't even talk about before was the, the conversation with the suspect. Yeah. Where they just like, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, you yeah, know, we, we don't think you did it. <laughs> yeah. Have a nice time. But the ending there where it was just it was so clear. Again, it's that like what I was saying before, there's like no situational awareness of how they sound when they talk about their policies and their procedures and how they're handling these rape cases. It's like to the rest of us, it's absolutely horrifying to them. They're just like, no, this is how we do things. You know, I'm like, what? Toby, what did you think about hearing Eleanor talk to Jen and having Jen find out from Eleanor that her case had been, quote, cleared? And so eventually LMPD closed your case, right? Did they? I'm hoping not. Okay. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> what? Jen didn't know. She kept she was still calling the cops. This was in October of 2019. This is a couple of months ago. Two years later, she still thinks her case is being investigated. And she finds out from the reporter that it has been cleared and and de facto closed. Yeah. Again, you know, Kevin alluded to it, too. Is I, you know, there must be a culture that developed around rape cases. You know, who knows how, but it's just not taken seriously for whatever reason. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of because it's, again, it's it's horrifying. I mean, I, I and I realize that communication can be tough. So I, it's just, again, it's sort of flabbergasting that it happens and that it seems to be enabled. It obviously starts at the top with the attorney's office, but the way the stuff we saw from the police is not... Um, uh, doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence either. Well, let's do what we do. Let's review this season of Dig, a very short four-episode podcast from Louisville Public Media and the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. Kevin, are you impressed with the way I pronounced Louisville correctly there? Did you? I did. You pronounced it wrong. <laughs> it's not Louisville. It's Louisville. Well, I learned I'm thinking that. about the baseball bat. <laughs> All right. Well, let's give it our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Um, I'm going to go with thumbs up. And I'm going to say, you know, it, it's a new year. It's 2020. You may want to get back into your rage walking routine. And um, you know what? This is just the thing to kick it off because it is the most maddening, rage inducing thing I've listened to um, other than Doug Evans. But it's, it's well reported. It's thorough research. We have an extremely credible and articulate um, woman who is used to illustrate the problems in the system in terms of how they're prosecuting these rape cases in Louisville. And um, I, I say give it a listen. What about you, Toya Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Dig from Louisville Public Media and the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting? I give it a thumbs up. It's what I think of as kind of like a newspaper podcast in that, you know, the journalism's really good. Uh, the host is clearly a, a strong journalist. You don't get much of a sense of her personality, really. I mean, it's not like Amber or Madeline or, or, or so many other hosts where you feel like it's kind of their podcast. Like this this feels like it's a news story. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a little different. But as far as uncovering and explaining this issue, I, I think it does a really good job. It is frustrating and maddening. With that in mind, uh, I think it, I think people should give it a listen. What about you, Kevin? Thumbs up or thumbs down from this season of Dig from KCIR and Louisville Public Media? I'm a thumbs up. We often talk about prosecutorial discretion and that it's never used and it's never really, you know, it's, it's a 
this is a policy that does give prosecutors a lot of leeway to decide whether or not to bring a charge. And in general, that's a good thing to have somebody else other than a police officer evaluate what's going on and whether or not it's appropriate to bring charges. But just based on the sheer number of cases limited specifically to this kind of crime, it indicates that they're basing their decisions on extrajudicial issues, in essence, not displaying any discretion at all. This is a good example of some data journalism. They were able to tell the story by following one particular person. I thought that they did it well. To me, it felt a little light. Maybe it's just because of the, the time, like the, the, the total time was a little more than an hour. I think that it might have something to do with there is a they're going to do a radio special on this which is probably an hour-long broadcast, so there isn't seven hours worth of material here. It fits nicely, but it still feels a not as hefty as most podcasts do. And, you know, it's overall, it's a great example of enterprise reporting. This really might be a hyper-local issue. Like, it doesn't really inform something about the, a national systemic problem in the judicial system, but I don't think it needs to be. I think it does a good job shining a light on... Uh, something that needs to be addressed. So I am also going to give a thumbs up, but I'm going to contradict you a couple times, Kevin. One mm-hmm. is I do think this goes beyond a hyper-local issue. I think they've used a hyper-local issue in their community to illustrate a lot of other things about rape cases that are systemic, A, why women are reluctant to report or to testify, the difference between uh, good policing and bad policing in crime scenes where there has been a rape allegation, all of those things. Um, I really admire the work that this outlet, Louisville Public Media and KCIR, are doing. I think that DIG is very much like the Uncover model, where they're going to do a series of stories under this one podcast banner, which is very smart. It's a good way for them to do that. My one complaint about the podcast is it is beautifully produced. It is beautifully written. It's explanatory as hell, very much along the lines of the Pope's Long Con, efficiently written. I walked away from every episode fully understanding the issues at play, knowing who the characters were, understanding what was going on. My one issue with it, oh, by the way, the theme song, baller. Really good (laughs) job with the music and the sound design in this podcast. My one issue is with Eleanor Klippinoff, the direction given to her about narrating this podcast. It's not her and it's not her voice. She's a fast talker. I'm a fast talker, too. I totally get it. But there was a lack of direction in how to deliver some of this narration, a lack of direction, a lack of editing and sort of the spacing between the sentences. Because she's a fast talker and delivers the information very quickly, I found myself a couple of times just like hitting pause and like going back or just having to sort of think about like, oh, so if I were, for example, Michael Barbaro in The Daily, I would have interrupted her for a second and said, so what I think you just said was X, Y, Z. That is my one criticism of the podcast. This is not a vocal problem. It's not a speech pattern problem. It's an editing and direction issue. Because a lot here, and I actually think the length, which you sort of said fits radio, special, whatever, it was perfect. I got the whole story beginning to end, learned everything I need to know about the issue in the right amount of time. It didn't need to be longer unless they were going to insert some beats and pauses because Eleanor is a fast talker and she didn't have the right direction or editor to sort of help her like stretch the narration a little bit. I really, really like this podcast. I admire it enough where I actually brought it to my newsroom today and said everyone should listen to it. So for me, it's a very big thumbs up for Dig.
Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of the week. Of the week. Looks like the U.S. was about to get into another trade war. This time, it seems we were breaking trade ties with the nation of Wakanda. Wakanda. Yep. That's Wakanda. the fixed fictional nation in the movie Black Panther. Seems a researcher spotted Wakanda on a USDA website listing countries who are free trade partners with the United States. The government says it was a mistake. Wakanda was used in the database as a placeholder by programmers testing the system, and they forgot to take it out before it went live. Oh, we've had book titles happen that way, Kevin. It was a pretty detailed mistake, though. There were hundreds of data points attributed to Wakandan agricultural exports. The U.S. is currently placing a tariff on Wakandan potatoes, but no additional charges for water chestnuts and livestock. Agriculture is good, but everybody knows Wakanda's most popular export is vibranium, which gives strength to Captain America's shield, Wolverine's claws, and Black Panther's armor. Try to get us that vibranium. So, panel, the United States is just going to have to smooth it all over with Wakanda, but what other diplomatic problems does the U.S. have with fictional realms? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I have absolutely no idea. This one has really got me stumped. Uh... You know, we're. I'm thinking like Harry Potter, but nothing is coming to mind unless we're like stealing something like the sorting education hat. policy at Hogwarts. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, it could be something like that. You know, and and um, I don't Should know. Should there be a witch charter school? <laughs> <laughs> Slytherin travel ban. There you go. Oh, that's good. I like it. But you guys are better than me. <laughs> uh, Toby Ball, what do you think? What other fictional diplomatic problems does the U.S. have with fictional realms? Well, there's. That big uh, Turkish delight embargo we've imposed <laughs> on Narnia. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? Oh, we attacked a consular ship on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. Oh, my goodness. Several transmissions were beamed to that ship by rebel spies, and we want to know what happened to the plans they sent. Oh, my God. I am so surprised. And if this is a counselor ship, where is the ambassador? <laughs> I am so surprised you're not talking about all the affordable housing issues going on in Bedford, Bedford Falls. Falls. Your favorite fictional realm. It's a wonderful life. It is. It's a wonderful You can do affordable... it, Kevin. You can do it. <laughs> oh, let me take a sip of water. You mm. can do it. Go away, cancer voice. Here we go. Merry. Look at that. Oh, Bedford Falls. <laughs> Merry Christmas, you old savings and loan. <laughs> you dance hall. All right. Fuck you, Mr. Potter. <laughs> <laughs> you old. Henry, can you please beep the word Thank you. All right, Laura Bricker, before we wrap it up, do we have a cat of the week this week? Uh, We have a family of animals this week. Swathi, one of our longtime listeners, been listening since the very first episode, lives in Indianapolis. Swathi says, I've been wanting to send you guys pictures of my pets for a while, finally getting around to it. We have Mac, Millie, and Flynn. Mac is a white boxer. Flynn? Yes. How wait, old is Flynn? Wait, we're, we're going to get, I'm going to tell you all the information. Mac is a white boxer. He is two. Millie is a brown haunt, hound dog. Very loud. One year old. Flynn is the cat. He is oh. almost seven years old. They're all three nice. rescues from Indy Humane. Mac and Millie, so those are the dogs, absolutely love each other, and they constantly make out. I have a pet attached a picture where you guys can see they are making out. We call it animal porn. 
Flynn doesn't nice. care for Mac and Millie and their animal porn and wants to be left alone. So we have the pictures and I'm looking, I'm like, oh, isn't this nice? The dog and the cats, so they're sleeping on the bed. And then I go down and the animal porn picture people, one dog's mouth is literally inside the other dog's mouth. <laughs> like, I, I don't even know what's going on there. So, and the cat has just got this expression like Flynn, the cat's like, what the fuck? Kevin, can you make sure that photo ends up on our web post for the episode this week? Sure. Yeah. Please go to crimewriterson.com if you want to see these nasty, nasty animals that are nasty, nasty things. <laughs> cat named Flynn is probably allergic to people. All right, Laura Bricker, if people want to send you their cat slash dog slash other animals to be cat of the week, yes, they can email crimewriterson at gmail.com, which is how we got this submission. But how else can they find you on the internet, Laura Bricker, perhaps on Twitter? They can find me at Laura Bricker on Twitter. And tell you, Ball, folks want to reach out to you and encourage you to encourage our handsome line producer, Henry, to produce your book club podcast a little bit faster. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, they can find me at Toby Ball NH, but I'd also like to say uh, to our listeners in Australia. Yes, uh, we're thinking about you guys. Stay safe. Um, you know, it's, it's it's tough. I can't believe what we're seeing out of Australia. And if any of you live there and are still managing to listen to this stupid podcast, God bless you. We're thinking about you, and like we just honestly can't believe what we're seeing. Our hearts are with you and all the wonderful animals in your country. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter, how can they find you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community on our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, which I promised Meredith I wouldn't say was boring anymore. Line editing by the very handsome and very industrious Henry Lavoie, our web maven and newsletter captain and future mama of yet another kid is Meredith Plunkett. Sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. Support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You will get the four yes Four podcasts we make for our patrons. The Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Book Club, and of course, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where mythical tribes come to bother us all the time. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. Later. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter, how can they find you? Henry, I'm going to just take a quick uh, pickup line and put it back with my crime of the week. Several transmissions were beamed to that ship by rebel spies, and we want to know what happened to the plans they sent them. Okay. Oh my God, you're such a baby that your Star Wars line has to be perfect? Yes. What is the matter with you? Shut up. <laughs> All right, you can see the email we got this this week about how sophomoric we are with our swearing. <laughs> the name of the show literally is Don't Fuck With Cats. <laughs> Fuck you, Steve. Okay, here we go. in crime media. media.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 